Lesson 14. How to let your subconscious help you in your work. We all work better and easier under certain conditions than others. For reasons known or unknown to us, our thoughts flow more freely in the presence of certain things and are inhibited by others. Sometimes these things seem silly to everyone else, but that should make no difference to you. Tell nobody about these little idiosyncrasies or peculiarities of yours. Waste no time trying to dispose of these powerful aids or in combating your aversion to others. Also, do not try to teach yourself to adopt those of other people just because they help someone else. The other fellows in yours are purely personal matters. These preferences or prejudices being lodged in the subconscious of each as a result of his own past experiences. These experiences, though forgotten themselves, are associated thereafter with this peculiar condition in such a way as to leave pleasing, constructive feelings or unhappy ones. For my own part, I can never write at my best save before an open fire in a room with many windows. A fireless room, however bright, handsomely furnished, and stocked with every other convenience, never enables me to do my best. Whereas I can forgo many of the other things I enjoy if only these two elements are in my environment. The cause of this peculiarity is known to me and the time and place of its origin distinctly remembered. I had written in many cities under many different conditions, but it was not until we spent a winter at Albert Hubbard's Roycroft Inn at East Aurora, New York, that I was able to write with ease. There, I occupied the Ruskin room on the top floor of the tower. It had windows on all four sides and a beautiful fireplace in which a log was kept always burning. My own study when built was designed, first of all, to include these two things. I hope you will pardon my personal references in these lessons. I make them only because my own experience has taught me much of what I am trying to explain, and also to make clear that you will do better to yield to these deeply embedded, innocent preferences than to oppose them. I do not relate these to everybody and advise you not to air your own promiscuously. Everybody appears more or less strange to everybody else, even under the best conditions. So it is just as well to refrain from publishing your own unnecessarily. For similar reasons, almost every person finds that he works more easily and happily at certain kinds of work in certain kinds of weather than at any other time. One man whom I know and who never cares to touch his tools ordinarily likes to carpenter around his home on cloudy days. A woman friend who sometimes comes to visit me brings in her trunk a certain kind of sewing which she never touches except on rainy evenings, and another never enjoys reading except when it snows. Then she likes nothing so much as to curl up in a window seat and devote the whole day to it. No one can drag her away. She will cancel any engagement she may have in order to keep this particular one with her own subconscious self. Poe, as we know, was naturally despondent, but what many do not know is that he was always happier and more productive in dreary weather. The fact that almost everybody is depressed by dark, drab days and stimulated by bright ones due to the biological memories of millions of years when our ancestors were exposed to weather makes all the more significant these personal preferences. In order for a dark day's preference to gain a foothold in the individual's subconsciousness, 
This kind of weather must needs have been intimately connected in his past with some very pleasurable emotion or experience. That this emotion or experience was so pleasing as to overcome a prejudice indicates its power, and this power should be utilized to help the owner. Efforts to oppose it mean the wastage not only of time, but of a valuable opportunity. One of the colleges I attended was a university in the windiest city I had ever visited. Though I had never given the matter any thought up to that time, it became evident to me that there was a decided difference between the morale, quality of recitations, and general feeling of the students on calm days and on very windy ones. Faculty members, when interviewed, said that they had noted it for years and always dreaded the general scatteration caused in the average young person's mind by extremely blowy weather. Though one cannot lay aside his regular work just because the weather fails to aid it, he can learn to know what it is that brings on these heretofore unaccountable feelings. And instead of laying it to other and more serious causes, take whatever steps he prefers to counteract it when it is necessary to work in spite of it. One student who came to me several years ago had begun to fear he was in danger of insanity for no reason except that on brilliant days, he always had an uncontrollable desire to give up his regular position on which depended the living of his wife and three babies and to go forth in search of the one kind of work he had always preferred. He has been brought up by a Southern mother who couldn't bear to see him in anything but a white-collar job, but he had always been interested in mechanics and liked nothing better than to don a pair of overalls and dirty his face and hands puttering over his car or any other available machine. By doing his work at the bank in daytime and attending an automobile school at night, he was able to transfer from the one to the other about a year later and ultimately invented an oil regulator that has made him rich. The whole world is familiar with the enthusiasm for work and for all creative effort which comes with the springtime. Also, with the workless feeling accompanying autumn's melancholy days. Spring house cleaning and the general campaign for refurbishment, which takes place at that time, are only two of the customs bred and born of psychological work tendencies. The thorough cleansing of the home is, as a matter of common sense, more necessary in the fall, when everyone is to be housed in for months, than in the spring, when fresh winds romp through it and when everyone spends much of his time away from it. But we are creatures not of common sense so much as of our senses, and so far as possible should reserve for each season the kinds of work we most enjoy doing in that season. Rule one, it will behoove you to study yourself for and take advantage of all these high tides that come within yourself. The average person works best in the early hours of the morning, more effectively in the forenoon than the afternoon, and more enthusiastically in the afternoon than the evening. This is due to three factors, the physical, mental, and spiritual. The body is more alive just after its rest, the mind more keen after sleep, and the spirit, in addition to being affected by both of these, is more uplifted than after the day's experiences or disappointments. But there are exceptions to this, as to all the other general habits mentioned above, and each individual should study his own reactions with a view to availing himself of the constructive and of rising above the destructive. Herbert Spencer and many another writer, scientist, and inventor worked best and easiest from 2 to 6 a.m. Many advantages do inhere in this period. 
First of all, the organism has been found to reach its high water mark in the average individual between these hours. Greater stimulation is felt then, mentally, spiritually, and physically, than at any others during the 24-hour, as anyone knows who has ever made a practice of arising at that time. Everyone who has sat up with the sick or who, for any reason, has remained up all night remembers the wide awakeness he experienced at about this time in the morning. The sleepiness, the weight of heaviness which enveloped him earlier in the night entirely disappears, and he feels as much or more refreshed than he usually does after a full night of rest. A second great advantage to be seriously considered, especially by those who are sensitive to noise, interruptions, or activity, is that in these hours, the world is more quiet and there is far less danger of interruption than at any other hours of the 24. The sense of security which this consciousness brings is not the least of the advantages to be gained from this period. Many persons can accomplish in one hour at this time what requires two or three later in the day. Almost all writers arise early, do much before breakfast, the remainder before lunch, and give the afternoons to rest, recreation, and sociability. Most of them feel also that their minds gather as much of value from this recreation period, which, though outwardly inactive, is inwardly alert, as from the hours of concentrated thought and work. There can be no question that fallow periods are as essential to the growth of the mind, work, and personality as work periods. The only great danger being that we shall let this resting period extend too long, or that we shall not enter into it with the attitude which creates while we are not working. All of us have experienced this growth and have been happily surprised to find that after we had dropped a problem from the conscious mind for a time, we could solve it easily upon returning to it. The most familiar of these illustrations came into the lives of most of us, I fancy, during school days. I remember with much gratitude a teacher of my own childhood who understood the laws of the subconscious mind better than even she realized. After watching for an entire term my vain struggles with arithmetic, she passed me to the next grade under condition that I make it up during the summer. When I told her I couldn't let one study hold me back for a year and that I was going to start in the day after school closed and work at it till I could understand it, she said no. You mustn't do that. You have worked hard enough. Rest a while. You have fought with yourself so long, your mind is all tired out. I want you to drop your arithmetic completely for two months. Don't try to work it out. Don't try to think about it. Just forget it completely. Turn your back on it and let it alone. Then, one month before school opens in the fall, come back to me and I think you will find it much easier. It worked for me in that instance as it has in thousands since. The veil seemed to be lifted from my mental eyes. From the first moment of returning to it, it seemed amazingly clear and simple. I had, as she explained it, tied my mind up in a knot. And while I was doing something else, my subconscious untangled it for me. I had done what we always do when we wrestle too long and too hurriedly and worriedly with anything. Drawn the string so taut, there was no play. The best simple illustration of this is seen when we try, by main force, to remember a name or anything we intensely desire to recall. Why can't I remember that, we exclaim. Oh, what is it? I know it as well as anything. What can be the matter? <laughs>
I must think of it. It doesn't come. We are demanding that the conscious mind produce it for us when, as we now know, memory is lodged in the subconscious. The more we pull and haul and scold at the conscious, the less opportunity has the subconscious to bring it up to us. We can never hear what the subconscious is trying to tell us if we are quarreling with the conscious mind. This fact accounts for many of our blunders. Call it what you will. Do with it as you will. And think of it as you may, religiously or scientifically. There is a still small voice within each of us. It is spiritual, but also very practical and will help us in the most common everyday affairs as well as with larger ones if we only let it. One of the first ways to let it is to recognize its existence and then listen for it instead of wrangling with the large, loud voice of the conscious mind. You will get a clear idea of just what I mean if you will think of yourself as possessing two workmen. One is Mr. Conscious and one is Mr. Subconscious. Conscious is a large, brawny chap, mighty valuable and powerful in his way, but lacking understanding. His great muscles are the ones you must depend on to do the actual labor of accomplishing things. But subconscious, who is a frail little fellow as far as muscles go, has got a better head on him. He is much older, more experienced in the world, and understands you and your needs far better than conscious does. But conscious doesn't give you much chance to find out how capable subconscious is. The schools and our parents and preachers and the world in general have praised Conscious and made so much of him, he is a little arrogant. Until recently, nobody paid any attention to Subconscious. He has such a retiring nature and is so above all these things anyhow that he never thrust himself upon us. While Conscious was always such a handsome young creature, we rather enjoyed thinking he was the whole staff. Conscious is always stepping in front of Subconscious and diverting our attention especially in waking hours and when we are trying to get something done in a hurry. In headlong fashion, he pitches in and makes a great fuss trying to work out a solution when all the time, if we would only say, step aside, please, and let subconscious decide what we had better do, we would save much time and failure. He won't put on any fuss or feathers, but as soon as you stop arguing with conscious and he can get your ear, he will tell you what it was you wanted to remember. After this, when you are trying to remember something, simply say, never mind, it will come to me. Go about your business and pretty soon, just as soon as conscious gets out of the way, subconscious will tap you on the shoulder and say, here it is. This is precisely what has happened every time the thing came to you afterward. Rule three. So, if you would reach your subconscious and set it to work at once on any piece of work, go through the formalities and proper steps beforehand. Learn as much about it as you can. Become conscious of as many phases, angles, and facts as possible. Gather all the data you can. Then, if the secretary, Mr. Conscious Mind, cannot handle your business, and he can most of the time, you will be justified in insisting upon seeing the head of the concern. Rule four, when you have done your part and are ready to turn the whole matter over to the subconscious, there are right and wrong methods of doing it. The right one consists of four things. First, that you turn the work over to him in an attitude 
of taking hold of that piece of work in a deeper way yourself, instead of letting go or shifting all the responsibility. Second, that you hold him responsible for doing it. Third, that you expect him to do it. And fourth, that you set a time limit at the end of which he should complete it. We will use the story of the arithmetic again, for it still serves as a good illustration of the right way. The teacher didn't let me think I was giving up arithmetic entirely just because I was not to think of it consciously for two months. She made me understand that I was really building up, not giving up the matter. In other words, I was taking on a new kind of responsibility concerning the arithmetic, not simply throwing responsibility aside. By telling me that I should take this way to do it, she implanted the idea that my subconscious mind was being given a definite responsibility to do that very thing. By saying I should find that it would come out all right, she impelled me to expect my subconscious to do it. And by setting a limit, she showed me how to demand results within a specified time. Rule five, in setting your time limit, use your good common sense so as not to ask the impossible. Also, use your higher senses and know it can and will be done whether your everyday conscious mind can see how it is to be accomplished or not. Then give your subconscious every encouragement, every constructive pat on the back you can. Pass on to it new ideas as they come to you, precisely as you would add to the data you had given to anyone else who was working for you. In brief, give it the work to do, then stand behind it in every way, especially with your confidence. In other words, submit a pattern to the subconscious in order to simplify its work and to enable it to know exactly what we want with the minimum of effort on our part. It will work out ways and means of completing the product. Robert Keeble, noted writer and author of Simon Called Peter, says, I believe intensely that it is our subconscious mainly that writes, actually plots a book. And I add my conviction that the more one can give rein to one's subconscious in writing a book, as with housekeeping, working in a machine, or hoeing a potato patch, the better it is. For in the genesis of a book, the theme has been driven down into the subconscious, which has already worked it out in its own way. I am convinced that the subconscious will plan for and help execute anything we try to do, and that it can do much for us when we recognize this fact and give it the utmost to perform. There is a way to do great things easily. So easily, it looks like a miracle. That way is to get ready to do it. The ease with which any person does his work is made possible by the fact that in his subconscious mind, he has stored away the knowledge and built the habit tools he now brings into use. Rule six, in order to obtain the fullest cooperation of your subconscious for any achievement, you must not shackle it with regrets. You cannot expect it to move forward consistently if you constantly turn it toward the past and compel it to give its attention and power to gazing backward. If you do, it will make about the same progress as a man does who stumbles backward up a hill. Extract the lesson from your past experiences and then drop them. Use them just as you would food. Eat them, digest them while you go about your business, grow strong in them, 
and face the future. We can grow strong on our defeats and failures if we will but look upon them as so many school books, which we had to master before we could be ready for the next higher grade. But we are through with them when the lesson is learned, and they should be discarded when they have served their purpose, just as your old school books are. How to Train and Develop the Subconscious Mind Have you ever stopped to think what perfect control your mind has over your hands? You have educated them until they are expert servants, performing their work almost automatically. One of the most glorious facts of life is that you can train and educate your subconscious mind to do the same. The power of your subconscious is unlimited, immeasurable, inexhaustible. So great is it that no one has ever yet plumbed its depths. When the proper methods are used, there is nothing, seemingly, that it cannot do for us. Certainly, it has never failed to do anything demanded of it by every person who ever obeyed its laws, all of which will be clearly explained in this lesson. The great general phases and possibilities of the subconscious, the steps by which it operates to bring us anything we want, have been referred to in previous lessons in this course, but in this one, we shall recapitulate, sum them all up, remind you of the necessary steps, and give the final instructions for setting into operation at any given moment, for any given purpose, the entire mechanism of this vast powerhouse. You need not take my word for this. When we put this great subconscious force to work in the right way, its immediate results in health, Confidence and tangible returns are so abundant that we can only wonder why we have never used this almost omnipotent power of ours before. Only a thought, but the work is wrought, could never by tongue or pen be taught. But it ran through a life like a thread of gold, and the life bore fruit a hundredfold. We are building, by the thoughts we entertain and encourage, an unseen but enormous web of the greatest magnetic power, a web that extends out from, beyond, and about us, as does the spiders, and which catches in it the things that correspond to it, the things it attracts. To build, therefore, a wonderful network that shall draw unto you the things you desire, realize every thought you dwell upon, brood over, or cling to, good or bad, becomes thereby a tiny silken strand in this great unseen but powerful network. Rule 7. To build a web that shall draw unto you the things you desire, the first thing you must do is watch your thoughts. Too many people think to themselves, I will do such and such a thing, but I'll think what I please about it, never realizing that this secret attitude has a drawing power in it. He never suspects that it brings to him in accordance with its nature sometimes more than any external, overt act could, because an act is something that, important as it may be, is often over and done with as soon as committed, while a thought sets into some kind of motion every fiber of his body and builds inevitably in a thousand directions in his remote and immediate environment. Everything in the universe grows by what it feeds on. Feed your mind, moment by moment, with good thoughts, serene thoughts, kind thoughts, and you will grow like them. Someday, the better things for which you have striven will come within the reach of your hand. 
Every divine thought you take into your mind and dwell upon builds for divinity in you, in your life, in your character. Every foolish weak thought tears down. Every strong thought strengthens. Every uplifting thought lifts us up. Rule 8. Great works, said Johnson, are performed not by strength, but by perseverance. When you feel discouraged or impatient, just remember the children of Israel, who spent 40 years in the wilderness before reaching the promised land. Rule 9. Go at things wholeheartedly. If you gently grasp a nettle, it will sting you for your pains. Grasp it like a land of metal, and it's soft as silk remains. When you have a disagreeable thing to do, a disagreeable person to meet, a disagreeable situation to face, wade into it. Otherwise, it will wade into you. Don't you remember as a child when you were called upon to take a dose of medicine, how much worse you made the whole thing for yourself by halting, dreading, whining, and playing with the spoon? It took ever so much longer to work up sufficient courage to take the stuff than when we gulped it down and got it over with. In fact, whole chunks of courage seemed to ebb out of us for every instant we delayed, till at last, when we had to swallow it, we were so weak, we trembled all over. Sometimes the message we'd sent into our stomachs over the solar plexus wires of the subconscious made it come right back again, and no wonder. Look out down there, you subconsciously called to your stomach. Here comes something horrible. I hate it, but I've got to send it to you. Little Mr. Stomach, thinking only to help you, took you at your word and did the thing he supposed you wanted. If this happened many times, he finally got into the habit which you boast of today, that you simply can't take medicine. The subconscious mind is marvelously sensitive. It learns easily. Like a good and faithful servant, it is constantly on the alert to see what you want, to do things as you want them done, and adapt itself in every way to your wishes and desires. If you dally and dawdle whenever something unpleasant has to be done, it soon comes to the conclusion that this is the way you want things handled and will always furnish you with excuses, justification, and supposed reasons for the delay, precisely as a good servant would bring forth defenses in your behalf if outsiders insisted on compelling you to do something it knew you disliked to do. But the moment you give it orders to go straight forward into things, it will make it so easy for you that you will wonder why you haven't always done it that way. It will go ahead, pave the way, find out the easiest routes, and do all the hardest work. And the glorious reward when it's done. Heaven can hold nothing sweeter than the gratification we have when a difficult task has been squarely faced and mastered. We suffer a thousand times more in anticipating things than we do when we get into the things themselves. To put off the disagreeable, to postpone the unpleasant, is only to give it power over you for that period of time, to confess its tyranny over you, all of which tears down your self-respect. The temptation to take it easy, to get out of doing the hard thing, to postpone the difficult task just as long as we can and get out of it altogether if possible, is natural to the old weak side of human nature. But when we resist this temptation, we rise above human nature and become superhuman. To the superman or superwoman, all things are possible, and most of them, easy. Rule 10. 
always start the day by tackling the toughest job first, by grappling with the next worst next, and so on, reserving the easy, pleasant things for the last. This doubles the fun of doing the pleasant one because your state of mind, which is always the important thing, is so much more peaceful and happy. If you will do this, the day will come when the habit of conquering the unpleasant things will become so fixed and firm that the going forth to meet them will be more pleasurable than painful to you, give you a thrill of victory and a sense of personal power, the equal of which is never found in any other way. To think of every tough piece of work as an enemy we are to vanquish is to call forth all of our self-expression. Such a habit finally relieves us of all pain when doing the difficult thing, in fact, puts pleasure in its place. But the longer we stand in fear and trembling of the hard things of life, the longer they will rule us, the more tyrannical they will become, and the less we will be aware of our vast unused resources. Tackle the unpleasant thing vigorously, masterfully, determinedly, if you would remove its sting. Do not hesitate or sidestep, and you will always find it easy. Rule 11. If you are ambitious to expand your life to its utmost possibilities, never shrink from whatever will make you grow, however distasteful it may be. Never shirk responsibilities, however disagreeable they are at the time, however it may interrupt your regular routine of life or interfere with your ease and comfort. Only the shouldering of responsibility develops manhood and womanhood, enlarges life, and makes it worthwhile. We must call out our reserves if we ever expect to realize what a strong standing army we have within us, ready to do anything and everything for us at our command. It is so human to play with the spoon all through life when we have anything disagreeable to swallow. If we only knew how much easier it is to take the bitter medicine quickly, we would save ourselves endless loss, pain, and humiliation. Martin tells this story. I remember a Harvard student, son of wealthy parents, who had been in the habit of living well and who went into training in the football team. But he was so unwilling to take his medicine, to eat the plain fare, and submit to the discipline and the hardships of training that the captain, much to his regret, was compelled to drop him. The young man loved athletics, possessed godlike physique, and would have been the star player. But he would not take the training and later had the mortification of being an outsider when his team was victorious in the season's games. The most sublime moments of life often lie very close to the most painful situations. All everyday men and women have much more power than they realize, but most of them continue to be just average because they have fenced in their talents, shut them off from themselves and the world, and even forgot their existence. To do your very best and be your very best, it is just as necessary for you to get yourself in tune as for the musician in an orchestra to get in tune. This lesson will show you how to tune up the greatest instrument you will ever have in this world, your subconscious. To get into harmony with what you are going to do, give your subconscious the order just before falling asleep and many times during the day to dissolve every inharmonious thought, feeling, and mood. The content of your subconscious mind is constantly changing. You are rebuilding your inner self every day, and the material you use for this rebuilding is composed of the thoughts you think hour by hour, moment by moment. 
It is the thoughts you are thinking today and tomorrow that will determine whether your subconscious will be more or less expert next week and a month from now. Rule 12. Recognize every thought as a brick in the wall of our life structure and select your thoughts as you would the separate bricks to be used in the building of an actual wall around your home. Each of us is surrounded by an invisible wall inside which we live our personal lives. To dwell in peace, harmony, and safety, to be secure from the inimical forces that would break through and steal, to be immune to disease, unhappiness, or failure, we need only to make these thought bricks strong and true. The storms will find no weak places then. The floods and winds of fate will have to pass us by. When people go under, give up in despair, lose their grip, or go down and out, it is because they, unknowingly, built so many weak bricks into their wall that it crumbled when the pressure came. If I were you, I would decide today, right now, this minute, on a certain course of action, and I would live up to it. I would decide to build me a brand new wall and gradually move myself and my belongings completely out of this old enclosure. I'd build for myself a city of refuge like those I saw in the Hawaiian Islands. In accordance with their ancient religion, a high, thick wall of lava rock was built in an open space or clearing, and any persecuted person, innocent or guilty, was safe from his pursuers if he could outwit his enemies and get inside it. Each of us has such a city of refuge within himself where the stress and storms and persecutions of life cannot come, and we can move into it if we only will. The chief reason that life for the average person is so full of hardship and unhappiness is not that it had to be this way, but because the average person has never tried to censor, control, or organize his thoughts and feelings. Every child should be taught by its parents and during its school years how to think right. This knowledge is a thousand times more valuable than everything else he is taught. Information and instruction we can gather anytime, so long as the mind is open and teachable. But the right attitudes of mind mean more to us than all the learning we can ever acquire. The change that would result in this country in 10 years from teaching children how to use their minds would be beyond belief. What to think, as well as what to learn, what to feel, as well as what to know. These are vital things which, if trained into the child's subconscious, would enable him to build a life from 10 to 1,000 times more happy and successful than he is able to do under the present methods. Rule 13. Iteration and reiteration. These are the two great steps in training and educating the subconscious mind. We are using them destructively or constructively all the time. According to what we are saying to ourselves, thinking to ourselves, and then repeating to ourselves. As soon as any impression, good or bad, is firmly fixed in the subconscious, it begins to externalize itself automatically. Thus, the impression you print upon your subconscious by constantly giving the constructive reaction to the events of life finally sets in motion vast inner machinery that does the work for you, almost without your being aware of it. The same is true if you give for a long while, a destructive reaction. It is this which makes us sometimes feel that the calamity which has befallen even our enemies is really worse than any recent act of theirs deserved. But it was the added up reactions of a long time previous that really brought it about. Do the right thing, say, think, and feel the right thing when things go wrong, 
and sooner or later, the reward will come with interest. Character can be modified and remade to an unbelievable extent through the proper use of the subconscious mind. Direct it to accomplish certain things in your nature. Back up this order with your efforts and, most of all, believe in yourself. And you can do practically, yes, everything you desire. Thoughts are seeds, each and every one of which drops into the soil of the subconscious and brings forth in accordance with its nature. Anyone who persistently indulges in thoughts of despondency, depression, or discouragement will reap a harvest of like nature. Out in the bright daylight of his everyday life, there will finally arrive the very surroundings visualized in the inner chambers of the mind. Think of yourself as unsuccessful, abused, down and out, and these undesirable conditions will materialize in your life. What does all these prove? That before we can have what we want, we must think it, visualize it, dwell on it, act, talk, and plan for it exactly as we have been doing for the things we didn't get. Reverse the process. Any man's nature becomes discolored, bent, twisted by destructive thinking, and good, pure, uplifted, confident thinking will straighten out the kinks. Many persons believe that their weak, undesirable characteristics are natural and inevitable, that they are a part of their temperament and cannot be changed. Temperamental weaknesses can be overcome. The life history of all the worthwhile men and women of the world is the story of a series of mistakes, errors, and fallings down, but followed by persistent gettings up again. What we must have is not freedom from the bumps and falls, but the persistence to start over again. This habit will eventually prevent most of the things that now discourage us. Rule 14. Incisive, vivid, graphic self-suggestions are best and secure the quickest, best results. Next to this in importance comes the full intention to attain what is desired. Settle on what you want. See it in your mind's eye. Decide to get it. Thereafter, pay no more attention to the things that would prevent it than you would to the carpings of his rival after you have ordered a certain architect to build you a house. Rule 15. Constant reiterations of your strength and poise will prepare the subconscious mind to withstand adverse conditions, unforeseen events, and other emergencies. Not to mention the great number of calamities this poise and confidence will prevent ever coming to you at all. Constant reiterations that you are going to like and enjoy a difficult piece of work because of what it will bring will make it comparatively easy, if not actually pleasant. One earnest, sincere application of this law will produce results that will forever after convince you of the truly miraculous power of your subconscious. Proper application of the law of self-suggestion will bring harmony out of discord in one's life, cure ailments, turn enemies into friends, failure into success, inner darkness into brilliant day. For helping oneself, it is a method that surpasses all others. It can make his ideals into realities, unfold his inner self, strengthen his soul, clear his brain, and remake his life. It will reveal and put to practical use in his everyday life innumerable factors, previously unguessed, which have been lying buried in his inner citadel. 
No one who has not made the acquaintance of and lived on intimate terms with his subconscious self knows the tenth of what he is, or a thousandth of the achievement he is capable of. Freedom from everything that enslaves can be attained through the right use of this great power. There is literally nothing it cannot do for us in the way of attainment if we will but throw every vestige of our support behind it. No person secures the highest and best results in life without the cooperation of his subconscious, though most of the world's famous men and women, up to recent years, worked in harmony with this strange inner force without ever guessing its real nature. It has been called the secret of genius, the intuitive faculty, and many other things, each aiming to express the great unseen energies which rise in such men and women under certain conditions. We now know what the conditions are which bring these unlimited energies out to the surface and put them to work and can now create knowingly and deliberately the conditions they had to wait to stumble upon when the mood or the muse seemed willing. We know today that these moods make our lives, but we know something they never guessed, that we make the moods. Effects, good or bad, weak or strong, happy or unhappy, will arise in our lives which exactly correspond to these long-continued moods. To make our lives what we want them to be, we must remake our moods, and to remake our moods, we must invite into our mental house the good thoughts that come to the door of the mind and turn the bad ones away. After a while, the evil ones will cease to trouble us. Suggest illness to yourself over a long period, or over a short one if the suggestion is intense, and illness will follow. Merely suggest, not even expect, harmony, discord, unhappiness, and these will walk in upon you sooner or later. If you believe in as well as suggest them, they will arrive sooner. That is all. The law of suggestion operates the subconscious mind and sets it to work in accordance with whatever you suggest to yourself, regardless of what you believe. It is a divine law, and the belief or non-belief of a mere human being affects it no more than it would the starting of your car once you step on the gas. Belief is helpful in that it makes you more quick and efficient in starting the inner mechanism. Rule 16. Suggest to yourself only those things you want to happen. Never think about, talk about, or act out the ones you do not want. Suggest peace, quiet, harmony, and achievement, and in a very short time, you will begin to see opportunities for attaining them which have never been apparent to you before. Some of these opportunities will have been created by the new tendency, and some will be old ones that have been there all the time, but which, in your preoccupation with their opposites, you did not recognize. An idea that is dwelt upon, continually thought about or encouraged, tends to monopolize a great proportion of the total manifestation of consciousness, to crowd out other and especially inimical thoughts, and to reach out in every direction for the materials it requires for its fulfillment in the external world. It is this which enables the so-called genius to accomplish so much. He sticks to one thing. It is also just this which, when carried to extremes in destructive thought, fear thought, or dread, brings that suffusion to the brain area handling this kind of thought, which causes insanity. People who go insane are insane on only one subject at first. The genius concentrates constructively on one or two great ideas, 
and because his concentration is outgoing and creative, becomes stronger. All the elements are on his side. This is a constructive universe, but he who concentrates destructively wrecks himself and his life. He is opposed to the order of the universe, and the very universe opposes him, whereas it literally comes more than halfway to aid him who is doing anything constructive. Many chronic invalids keep themselves in that condition from habit alone. Hundreds of people have remained bedridden for years from no earthly cause save self-suggestion. Most of the well, healthy people who do the world's work and carry its burdens could be sick next week and stay that way as easily as these others if they sat down and took the trouble to report every little ache to the subconscious as the chronically sick do. I know many busy men and women who have now trained the forces within and around them until they are practically immune to undesirable things. Most of the invalidism of the world could be overcome if there was real desire on the part of the afflicted to be well. But in all too many cases, there is not this desire. Wherever the invalidism of any individual brings him attention, love, care, comfort, or other things which he desires more than the things health could bring him and which he could have were he well, he may insist on staying ill. Such a one is not curable because he refuses to pass the order for health on down to his subconscious mind. He may go through all the motions and pretenses, but he takes the suggestion only as far as the door of the subconscious and is careful not to take it inside. Such a patient may really believe himself ill and may have kept up the practice referred to until it is automatic within him. The one who says in reply to the true stories of miraculous healings, maybe so, but I'll bet he couldn't cure me, is clinging subconsciously to his illness. The supreme subconscious wish often operates not only to keep one ill himself, but to suggest illness to another if the illness of that other promises to aid his own great wish. I have in mind a case which aptly illustrated the above. A young man had been taught from babyhood by his mother, who wanted to keep him near her, that he was frail, not strong, unable to enter into games like other boys, etc. He was a handsome, broad-shouldered lad, so thoroughly well physically, that two of the greatest diagnosticians in America pronounced him, after complete examinations, absolutely normal in every way. He had been filled with the suggestion from childhood that he was not equal to the exigencies of life. This was his first difficulty, and one for which he was in no way accountable. The mother, whose only child he was, and who desired above all else in life to keep him by her side, knowingly or unknowingly suggested to him the ideas of illness, which would make him so dependent upon her that he could not go out into the world away from her. By this mother's supreme secret wish, he was made an invalid through the constantly reiterated suggestion of invalidism planted and replanted in his subconscious mind, and thus compelled to remain with her. He, on the other hand, kept this invalidism, despite actual physical normality, because of a supreme subconscious wish of his own, the wish to spend his life reading. Every time he attempted any work which interfered with this, he gave it up. After just about so much effort, he would resign his position, take to his bed, and spend weeks of apparent physical illness and all too apparent mental joy reading, reading, reading. Though he was a perfect example of the power of mind over matter, he ridiculed its possibility. 
between his own supreme wish to spend his life reading and his mother's wish to keep him near her, he was the victim of suggestion from within and without, and of course remained an invalid. Both were really innocent, but that did not prevent the consequences of their acts being visited upon them. Parents who suggest weakness, frailty, unfitness, or inadequacy to their children are committing crimes. Necessity, hardship, or real desire on the part of the one afflicted will enable him to rise above this, provided he will apply the law of suggestion to himself. Self-suggestion is far more powerful than any outside suggestion. He can often undo the evil work of years or a lifetime in a very little while. I have known of many people who are made ill or inefficient through the suggestions of others, which they accepted and made into auto-suggestions, but not one is compelled to remain so when he knows what has been explained in these lessons. Rule 17. Never use self-suggestion to your own disadvantage. Do not dwell upon the unpleasant things that happen to you, the unpleasant things people say to you, the unpleasant events of your past, etc. Just remember that these are insignificant except as you give them power over you and that when you try to do so, it is you, not these things, that harms you. All right, decide not to hurt yourself just because someone else tries to. You are in armor. No man's arrow can penetrate that armor. But if you take to heart what he tries to do to hurt you, you are sending his arrow into your own bosom. Rule 18. When working, it is well to dwell on what you are trying to do rather than on your own feelings. And it is always better not to look inward as much as outward. Look inward enough to give a definite order to your subconscious and then get busy to do your part to help it out here in this external realm. Whatever happens, don't watch yourself all the time. Give what you have planted a chance to grow. If you do not, you are like the gardener who was always digging up by the roots the things he had planted to see what was happening with them. When you give your subconscious an order in accordance with the laws referred to in these lessons, you have complied with the requirements and you will get results if you will but go on about your business and give them a chance to work. You do this for your vegetable garden. Don't do less for your own inner one. Rule 19. After you have given the order to your subconscious, realize it is being attended to, precisely as you know this about your grocer once you have telephoned your order to him. How these things are to be gathered together by him, wrapped up and delivered to you, are not matters that concern you. But there are matters that do, and these are the ones you should be giving your attention to. For one thing, you should keep all thoughts that are in contradiction of what you want out of the parlor of your mind. Do not entertain them. That is your job. On the other hand, make yourself a committee of one to invite in and entertain all thoughts that would aid or inspire the subconscious in carrying out your order. I can best illustrate this by telling you what the mother of one of our well-known women novelists used to do for her. The daughter had certain hours for writing, and while thus engaged, no one was permitted to interrupt her. They lived in a friendly neighborhood where the young woman was very popular, and often people whom she could not herself have refused to see came to call. But the mother resolutely refused to allow her to be disturbed, and by giving her the attic room for a study, was able to prevent even the noises of the rest of the household away from her. 
If her mother had failed to do this, or if she herself had insisted on interrupting her, we might not have had this woman's great books today. Most persons devote a great many more thoughts to their failures than to their successes, regardless of the fact that they may talk to you a great deal more about the successes. Rule 20. Extract the lesson which every unhappy thing brought you, and be sure it brought at least one, then let it pass out of your mind. No effort you put forth for good is ever lost. They are always creating results. Though you cannot see yourself grow, if you are trying to be better and stronger and persisting in repeating the order for it to your subconscious mind, nothing can keep you from developing. You are simply growing as the plant does, imperceptibly. And if you continue to comply with the laws of growth, someday the fruit will appear. Sometimes you may seem to be standing still, to have been stationary for a long time, or to be backsliding. But when you least expect it, you will discover that some of the things which were hardest to bear served the greatest purpose, that every discouraging thing furnished its own quota of growth, despite the appearances at the time, and that you are a different and stronger person than you were only a little while before. At this stage of evolution, certain things are within the range of possibility, and apparently others are not. But here is a fact never to be lost sight of. Things which we think are beyond the range of human possibility are probably well within that range, and thousands more which we imagine beyond our own individual powers are also within it. I will illustrate how this applies in mental control of physical conditions. If a man's leg is cut off, it would probably not grow again, no matter how hard he believed it would. Man's subconscious mind is evidently not yet evolved to that degree, or at least he has not practiced this particular habit long enough to produce new limbs in us as, for instance, the subconscious of the lobster has done for him. The reason for this appears to be that legs compose so much more important part of the lobster than of man and are so vital to him that much of his habit mind has been concentrated in that direction for millions of years. Man has concentrated on the development of his mind, which accounts for the superiority of his mental development over that of all other creatures. One of the world's greatest naturalists declared that the eagle developed wings because of his intense subconscious desire to fly, that the giraffe grew his long neck in order to browse on higher and higher branches, while Paul Kammerer, a biologist of Vienna, has recently, after 10 years of experimentation, produced in his laboratory a newt with eyes, the first little creature of this variety ever to possess them. I will quote from Dr. Charles Fleischer's article in the San Francisco Examiner of December 17, 1923, the details of this remarkable experiment. He says, Living in submarine cages for thousands of years, this little amphibian did not have the power of sight. Its eyes were mere rudimentary organs under the skin. Dr. Kammerer exposed one of these blind newts to red light for several years. Generation after generation of this sightless little animal were thus created, and at last one group appeared in which the eyes pushed through the head. All succeeding generations continue to be born with seeing eyes. The Newt theory promises to become as important as the Newtonian theory.